This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 559 for May 17th, 2017. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld, and I just want to say, uh, I guess it's malware just wanna crypt fun or something. I don't know what the great joke is there, but uh, it doesn't apply to us anyway, so uh, uh, don't get too smug, but we'll talk about it later. Want to crypt? Uh, no, I don't want to crypt. I want to talk to Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hey, hey. Hey there. Hey there. Hello. Let's not be too smug. We got to avoid being smug when it comes to malware. Oh, yeah. <coughs> It'll be our turn someday. That's true. I know. I know. I'm, Everyone gets their turn. <laughs> well, Handbrake, Handbrake just got uh, its uh, worm uh, in the binary. We were talking about that last week briefly. Handbrake uh, had a compromised binary. So, you know, could happen. Um but we'll see. But let's uh, let's start. Not a uh, crazy busy week, but a lot of stuff going on. And uh, we're going to do some follow-up to start with. Um, first of which is we are talking just last week about Apple's announcement. Tim Cook said on Jim Cramer's show that Apple was going to put a billion dollars, one billion dollars into uh, advanced manufacturing, uh, research and development, um, you know, I guess deployment to in the United States. And we're talking about that. And hey, a few days go by. And I think they had that billion-dollar figure prime because they put $200 billion into corning, which seems like a pretty good move. It did. I mean, I think I think I thought it was going to be some little startup none of us had heard of. But corning is a smart thing to invest in because, yeah, they make a lot of the glass that Apple uses in its best-selling products. Yeah, and it's got a long partnership, too. I mean, that's the famous thing that came out later was Apple, you know, the original iPhone had a plastic front, and uh, Steve Jobs is like, nah, that's going to scratch, take care of this. And uh, they dug around, and you know, Corning had its Gorilla Glass product that they, I think, as I recall, they couldn't quite find a market for it yet, right? That was the thing. And Apple said, we need a million billion square inches of this. And Corning said, sure, we can just do anything. And they snapped their fingers, and everything was perfect. But um, it, w- it was a little interesting how uh, the material happened to be available that Apple needed, and they are able to retool and ship that thing you know, in relatively small quantities for the first uh, iPhone. But that tied into a lot of later success. Like the iPad, um, my recollection, Susie, is that one of the reasons the iPad was able to lock in that price and keep competitors out was that Apple sort of pre-bought all the glass of a certain size. Like the yield, if you wanted a 10-point whatever-inch glass that was perfect, you couldn't get any because Apple had bought it all. Um, So this seems like a great investment. Um, yeah, and I mean, when when you look at sort of where the iPad and the iPhone are going to innovate in the next few years, like when you look at the rumors and stuff, they're always talking about like a different size of screen, like a different curve, like no bezels, thinner, and all of that is going to come down to, you know, how they can engineer these materials. So it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, you know, Apple's had uh, famously had a failure of a partner, that company that was making the sapphire-infused uh, glass ah, down yes. in uh, was it Arizona, and that became a whole uh, debacle. So it's clearly said, look, we can't just rely on partners raising their own funding necessarily. We should have a stake in and uh, make sure this happens so we're not caught with our bezel down again. <laughs> bezel down. Um, so that's good. So but hopefully, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping we're going to see some investments that are like $5 million or $20 million, not all like, well, we just gave it out to five companies and boom, we're done. Um, also, <laughs> well, they th- said they were going to seed it with a billion like initially. So, oh, you know, they, they, they could like roll out five 
200 million investments and then and then re-up it later. I don't know. They this have is, a lot of money. This is totally a tax play too. Is you know, Cook said, hey, we have to borrow for that billion because all our money's parked overseas. And I saw someone write, Apple has it stored tax-free overseas. It's like, no, they've paid tax in whatever jurisdiction the money's owed, they paid tax, often very yeah. little or nothing potentially because of how the uh, t- local taxation laws are set up. Sure. Um, but you know, you know that there's going to be a bipartisan, I, I mean, even in this uh, you don't just climate. have a barge in international water like, stacked with $100 bills. <laughs> Could come home anytime. But, you know, so this is this is Float Cook's – this is a great carrot stick thing. Cook's like, well, we'll spend a billion. But, you know, if we had more money here, we'd spend more money here. And and this is – it's a priority, Wouldn't I think. would be nice? Yeah, the, the, current, <laughs> the current corporate tax system, without taking any opinion on – uh, like what tax should be, it's totally unfair because you know some companies pay zero, some pay thirty five percent. It's much higher as a tax than in other countries, but it's lower on average. So it's it's you know it, nobody really pays the thirty five percent. Well, some you know, there's some little guy who can't get out of it. Exactly, so. or you're in a very That's particular industry. So you know there there has been an, an interest in many years, and it's possible there will be a bipartisan you know effort that be to to figure out how to because uh, we've had seen a couple already so far, like the bu- the budget was actually passed with a bipartisan effort, so uh, or the continuing budget. Um, so conceivably, we could have an issue where Apple gets a deal, like, hey, you pay 10% or whatever they work out, and you repatriate some of that $250 billion cash hoard. And then Apple says, that's great, because you know what we're going to do? We're going to up that fund from $1 billion to 10 or whatever. So I, this definitely seems like a uh, both a strategic move, but also a negotiating ploy for um, tax uh, reshoring, or whatever they call it, onshoring. Um, yes. repa- repatriation. That's it. Um, we were talking too about you know a lot of these advanced manufacturing jobs don't uh, or uh, uh, industries don't involve a lot of jobs, right? So you open a data center and there's a lot of people employed while building it, but then that's a short period. Then like 50 people run a you know million square foot building. Um, Corning says it's uh, employed about a thousand people so far in these kinds of advanced glass jobs in the U.S. So this investment by Apple doesn't mean hey there'll be 10,000 more workers. They'll you know ostensibly. It could involve hundreds or maybe you know a thousand more jobs. It's in the same scale, uh, so I think that's important to remember that it's um, mostly where the money is being spent for uh, product, not necessarily job improvement. But that's still good because it you know brings the manufacturer back. It keeps the money in country and, and it helps mm-hmm. taxes and and the rest of it. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a good outcome. Uh, another story, kind of a little bit of a follow up because we were talking last week about. Uh, the uh, increasing likelihood that Amazon Video will be on Apple TV at some point in the future, and we've heard a little mm-hmm. more about that. And uh, Susie, you said uh, there's a, a rumor out that um, – oh, I'm sorry, not a rumor out, but that there's a, Apple, Amazon's uh, going to release a television set that's basically like a Fire TV. Yes. So instead of having a TV that you already own and putting you know, connecting a Fire TV box or the Fire TV stick – um, they're rolling out a 4K TV that has, um, you know, Amazon Fire kind of built in already. Um, so nothing's plugged in. You just turn it on. So uh, like Roku did this. Um, they p- partnered with uh, TCL and Hisense like a year or two ago and rolled out these Roku TVs where, yeah, like that's the smart TV interface. It, it's like the Roku home screen and the Roku, you know, all the apps and services and stuff are just sort of built in. Um, so you don't need the box. And that's kind of nice. Like people, um, I know our guys at TechHive, and good old Dave Zatz, 
um, have been very positive about the Roku TVs. Um, they're like, you know, they're really great for, you know, a guest room or a den or some kind of like, a lot of people are picking them up as their second TV because they're very cheap. So, um, yeah, Amazon, like this article doesn't say who's making it for Amazon. So it might be like an Amazon branded thing. You know how they have like their own, um, tech kind of line of products and mostly it's been like basic things. So this is, this is kind of stepping it up a little bit. Um, but yeah, so so that's exciting for Amazon. It's going to be five hundred dollars for for four K TV. I uh, I like the idea of Amazon trying to get into that market because <clears throat> although it's um it's a weird market because uh, the race to the bottom, right? Like the sets are already cheap enough, um, and the prices are falling. But nobody, uh, I haven't looked at this market in the last couple of years. I should be honest. Um, I've seen little bits and pieces. I'd researched it uh, extensively a few years ago when a report had come out that. Nobody's selling television sets. None of the, the retail brands were making money except the companies that made everything from the glass through the final retail product. Um, so you have a Samsung makes money off it, but like uh, – I forget. It's not Sony. Some of the other companies, they buy all their glass, uh, their glass and some of the display technology from uh, other companies like Samsung. So as a result, they were selling products you know, below their cost, but if they'd gotten rid of that product line that was a non-profitable product line, in terms of their whole mix, it would like reduce their revenue and their volume of products. And <clears throat> excuse me, they had to keep uh, selling TVs because um, there was no way out. And there's so much competition, it remains intense that uh, it's still unclear to me if anybody is really making money in this space, it's all got to be value add. So Amazon getting into the market with a, an affordable set that they can market to, you know, uh, however many tens of millions of people uh, will buy it in the various markets are in. That uh, puts even more price pressure. And it's a channel competitor because Amazon, of course, already sells 4K TVs. Oh, and you know, okay, so small correction. They are going to be in physical stores in June and they're available in Amazon. Um, you can pre-order now and they ship in mid-June. Um, and then when they roll out into stores, they're going to be uh, Westinghouse branded, depending on which market they're sold in. So maybe Westinghouse is making these. So, um, And then the other thing is that – so they have a voice remote and Alexa. Yes. So your TV is now also an Echo. Oh. So wait a day or two and we're going to start seeing follow-up pieces being like, well, is your TV listening? Because that's been a problem with smart TVs. Like um, people have sort of dug into the software and found – <laughs> oh, yeah. this TV is just straight up spying on you. So Amazon is going to have to, you know, I, I think people are going to be concerned about that. And Amazon is going to have to to sell sell the security and make it really plain, like when it's listening and what it's listening to, um, where the voice is being sent. But you'll be able to, so now Alexa, you know, will have all its, its Alexa things and it'll also be able to actually like, you know, control your TV. Um, so that's kind of cool. Because right now Alexa doesn't have that, so that'll be a an exclusive feature, I guess. I'll tell you. Well, now that means we will never have one of these in our house. Uh, not just my <laughs> opinion. My wife would not allow such a thing in the house. Um, our TV is getting kind of like it sort of needs to be replaced a little bit, and I, you know, I'm just kind of waiting because they keep getting cooler and cheaper and cooler and cheaper. I was assuming I would buy a dumb TV, um, and I I have a Fire TV box, or I used to, but I never really used it, so. Um, you know, like, but this is, it's, it's, it's a cool idea and the, the price points are right. Like the 40, the 43 incher actually starts at 450. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, good Lord. No, it's, I know this, I'm looking at the pricing and it's ridiculous how inexpensive it's going to be. Um, although honestly I haven't priced set, so it's my reaction. I should say, this is my reaction without having gone through and priced, uh, the similar sets of features because it's, you know, it's practically a computer. It's got HDMI ports, it's got USB and ethernet and, 
Uh, SD it card looks like slot. good ports. It doesn't have HDR, which I guess is like a hot feature for TVs now. Yeah. But I don't know how, like how much content there is. But yeah, it's got an 802.11 AC Wi-Fi built in, which is good for high speed. It doesn't have AD, which makes sense. But uh, that's eventually going to be a personal area network standard. We'll see because it does. Uh, you can do uncompressed HD streaming uh, in a network, um, or not HD, but uh, UHD. I think seven gigabits per second. Um, yeah, I don't so, know. I mean, like the securities, uh, like you know, th- this this just made my my list. I yeah. mean, I'm, I haven't really researched it that much because I haven't gotten serious about buying a new TV. But once I do, like this this is going to be on the list, I think, to to look into. Um, it, but the security question is the big wild card. It's uh, I don't want a TV listening to me. I I yeah, actually like, I don't have one of those you know assistant speakers yet, and I don't think that I would buy one. Like I don't think the product is like compelling enough to buy one yet. I mean, I guess you wait and see what Apple does, obviously. Um, but but having that built into a TV like almost makes more sense to me. Oh yeah, absolutely, because it's the hub of a lot of people's rooms where they yeah, spend you're gonna have most a of the time anyway, and so you household. might as well. <laughs> yeah, you want and then you put a dash in the kitchen or something as the mm-hmm. extension and then you're then you're set. But or you put an echo there because of the better speakers if you want better speaker quality. Um yeah, it's uh I want a dumb TV. I want a TV we have a Samsung that does has Amazon and Netflix built in. So to some extent this is gonna be I mean, this is a better TV that they're selling, but uh it's gonna be like that Samsung except Amazon, you know, fire boots at startup. And I don't like the, – the, it's a terrible um, interface and it's a terrible thing. I really just want a TV that has a source input. And so I, yeah. may, you know, I might look – but I don't usually uh, – computer monitors used to be the way to go for that. And But you can't get ones that are larger that sort of fit that parameter now because you've exceeded the size. So – um, I hope there's a market at some point for dumb TVs again. Um, oh, there but, is. Yeah. No, like this, so for a while you could only really buy a smart TV, but now it's kind of starting to come back the other way because like the, the smart TV software is like awful and people know that the interfaces <laughs> suck, the security sucks, like you're not going to get good updates. I mean, maybe like, you know, a, a smart TV from a company like Amazon that's so focused on, you know, this, this, this kind of thing and like software and, you know, tech. Um, it might might be a little safer, but yeah, a lot of like there's you can buy dumb TVs. Like we saw a ton of them in uh at CES this year that were just like they're they're sort of back to focusing on like the really big screen, HDR, um, that kind of stuff. Um, so so yeah, they're getting away from from smart TV interfaces. Like it has to be in every <coughs> single TV. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it's so much easier to just add a box, and then you you get the box you want. Yeah, I don't want to be tied in. I want to be tied into software updates. And my Samsung is constantly, like, every few months, it's like uh, an undismissable banner appears for like 20 or 30 seconds after oh. the TV boot up says, this service that we used to offer is no longer available. And it's like, and it shows up for like three months. And I've looked through all the documentation and you cannot accept the banner and get rid of it. So every oh time you gosh. turn on the TV, um, and you know, eventually there'll be no services left. They got rid of Skype. They got rid of, I don't know, all these other things. And I'm like, great. I'm glad you're telling us, but there's no way to click OK. So... No K, no K. That's what I say. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's see. So that's our follow up. Uh, I want to talk uh, briefly about um, you know, Susie. I like to talk about security issues. So uh, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I'll allow it. All right, I'll thank you, counselor. A sidebar. Um, so WannaCrypt, uh, folks, you may have heard um, an enormous amount about this already. It's a ransomware virus slash worm that. Uh, that uh, sprouted on Friday and uh, knocked out some of the National Health Service in the UK's ability to function. So people 
some of them with vital surgery had to be diverted or, or postponed uh, because the necessary support systems, including like you know charting and so forth, weren't available. Uh, and there's this whole intertwined thing about um, actually, I've got a story I was writing for uh, another publication about. Um, how users are being blamed. This is kind of the angle I want to talk about is that users are being blamed. You didn't update your uh, XP. You didn't, um, oh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's your problem because, uh, you know, NHS was forced to cancel because of budget cuts, which are a whole political bit of nonsense over in the UK. It's like the best run health service in the world and won't get into the politics of it, but there's a budget cut. So they didn't renew a contract for Windows XP end of life extension support. There's like custom service that um, oh, Microsoft man. still offers. So they didn't get the patch. So, so the user, it's the user's problem, right? They didn't patch it. So I was like, no, this was an NSA, you know, allegedly. You patch a CAT scan machine or something, you know, like well, the company that made it maybe went out of business five right. years ago. So you like can't, there's so many problems you can't like this. update the customs window, window XP setup because when you update it, it breaks the software, which is no longer supported or in a proper IT organization, they get the patch in and they test it for some period of time and then they roll it out gradually, even uh, severe patches. It takes a while to roll out and implement. Um, but but the users are being blamed. Even in this case, let's, let's even pretend that NHS's IT department is at fault. I don't think it is, but let's pretend they could have done more, right? And th- there are things they could have done, but let's, let's just say it's entirely their fault. This was a uh, – Shadow Brokers is this uh, group that uh, exfiltrated – uh, what they say were and seem to be confirmed uh, national security agency cracks that were stored insecurely by a contractor and may, may have been leaked in another way as well. But um, they got a hold of a huge uh, cache of things. Some of these uh, cracks uh, were already um, fixed in operating systems and some were not. And it's unclear what remains out there. And shadow brokers tried to auction it off. The auction failed. They said, well, we're just going to start to release some of this stuff. And uh, – they uh, uh, Microsoft released a huge set of patches in March that um, just kind of out of cycle. Everyone was kind of wondering what's going on. And then uh, the drop happened in April. And some of the uh, things that came out in the Shadow Brokers uh, drop were still zero days. They hadn't been uh, – or sorry, they were zero days until Microsoft had patched them in March. So Microsoft released for its end-of-life products or products that had passed that, they had only released it through their custom support channels. So you couldn't get an XP update unless you're paying for this custom support because XP has been now out of support for a long time. And um, because of the pressure, Microsoft built this program that's available for some of these companies that are still supporting it. XP is a funny case because Windows XP was widely pirated. Um, it, it's in use by in a lot of uh, developing countries. And it also, uh, because of system requirements, you may have had an XP machine, but then you can't literally update that computer to any later version of Windows because you lack the system specs. So this is kind of a, you know, A, there's the piracy angle, so that's bad because it's whatever. But in B, there's the uh, organizations that are making do and they're still running machines, you know, 15 years later that are running a piece of software that they, you know, should have obsoleted and they didn't, right? And they, they don't have the budget like the NHS to necessarily update all the time. So there's like all of these interlocking issues. Um, and then the NSA, should they be preserving these? Probably not. They should be disclosing them to companies. Uh, Microsoft released a blistering statement about here's the effect of what happens when you retain these cracks. It means eventually they get out, whether they're leaked or someone discovers it simultaneously. And that affects it's a national security issue. It's a commerce issue. It's a personal safety issue for citizens. Um, so, Susie, do you remember uh, <laughs> way back when Apple and FBI were uh, – jousting over the San Bernardino. I uh, do remember that. We talked about that a bit. So I went back and looked and Apple said, one of our concerns is that if we make this software and the FBI has it, that it might get leaked out of the FBI 
and become yeah, widely available. What happens available. if it gets out? Yeah, they said that as part of their filing. They had other objections too, but that was one of their things they talked about. And the was, FBI's like, no, 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 we, we keep, keep everything it here, secret. No one you would could ever. keep it at your place, and we'll just come over. Cool. And they're like, like, once, once you, once you, uh, like, make, no, once it exists, it's going to get out. Like this is how software works. G- given my ethnic background, I know a lot about golems. And once you make the golem, <laughs> yes. once you put the uh, letter on the golem's forehead, it starts to, it starts to uh, rampage, and you really can't put. The that golem, there's no box to put it back into. It's hard to just, you gotta, gotta patch the golem to get the letter off its head and it collapses into clay. And we're not going to see, see that here. So I hope that like everyone kind of bookmarks this and yeah. then next time there's hearings, they say, well, don't you remember? Yeah. But don't, don't blame the users. I mean, okay, so I'm sure I in some places. I think it might have been Putin too. Right, well, and the, uh, yeah, and the, and Russia isn't happy because the virus uh, hit them. So here's the thing, the reason, and Microsoft's role in this is when Microsoft started shipping Windows, you know, the internet was already a dangerous place in like whenever XP came out, 2001, I think it was, or 2003, whenever XP first came out. Uh, it was already a dangerous place. We knew this. They ship an operating system that's internet connected by default that has every service running and every port open, right? They're still, that's like original sin. I forget if Windows 95 was that bad, but Windows, you know, XP was their first really good release of Windows for uh, graphical oriented Windows. 95 kind of stunk. 98 wasn't great. Windows XP was the was the good first release, and it's why everyone's still running it because it was actually not a bad release in terms of the overall system architecture and what it did. Uh, and so a lot of systems were built on top of it, and people were like, "Well, I ran my last system on a mini computer for twenty years. I'll run this on XP for twenty years, right?" And I don't know why I just did a southern accent. I, I have my family's from the south. Sorry. Sorry, that was biased. Um, but uh, but it's true. Well, I, did, I interviewed this company that's still using 1950s technology that um, it's like a punch – or not punch card. They actually directly wire the stuff to produce billing. It's really cool. So uh, they're in the South. Anyway, the, so uh, XP was shipped at a time when the internet was already extremely known to be dangerous and Microsoft is still paying for that because the way to defeat this worm is you turn the SMB file sharing service off. Most people using – XP probably aren't using SMB, or if they are, they could have a firewall in place that would only that would limit it um, either at an operating system level or third-party software or built-in whatever to local area networking. It is vanishingly small percentage of people who are running something like XP who need out of local area network SMB access. So I lay this at Microsoft's feet. They built a badly architected system, they didn't over time close it down. They could have released something that said, look, if you're a normal user, run this and we will shut down all the services that we can't detect are in use and we'll run like a wizard and it'll query you. And if you try to do something, they'll say, here are all the reasons why you shouldn't, but you can still open this up and put it in the user's side. That's kind of what Apple ultimately did. You know, Apple's earlier OS X releases were a little more open. Over time, they shifted. So by the before the late 2000s even, Apple shifted to an approach in which services aren't running unless they need to be. You have to explicitly activate them, and it shipped with a firewall built in. And, you know, Windows ultimately became safer and safer. Windows 10 is a very effective and robust operating system. And is, isn't subject. The reason we're seeing so, – so, Susie, you know what the most popular – I'm not – this is not really a test. You know what the most popular worm in Windows is right now? No. It's Configure, which only affects older – it's like Configure came out like 2008 or even before that. So Configure is the, is the single most popular Windows virus out there and doesn't affect Windows since, I forget, version 8 or something. Uh, because there's like, I forget what the percentage is, 50% of systems are running Windows 8 or earlier. Maybe it's even more than that, depending on how you count it. Um, so uh, so there's that issue. So Apple made different choices, and Apple's choices 
I say continue to pay dividends in the same way that Microsoft continues to suffer from this original sin of, of <laughs> you know, opening everything up and then never closing it down even later. And then this whole path of Apple gets in this as well, where Apple, um, you know, they their upgrade path for Mac, I mean, iOS is a slightly different story, but the upgrade path for Mac goes back so many years that the most machines uh, that are still in, most Macs that are still in use are using a relatively new operating system. Many of them are using the very latest one they can. And Apple continues to offer security updates back about two releases. So that takes you to machines that I think are nine years old if you're running like Mavericks, if that's the last one you can run. So that pays dividends as well. So when there's a massive thing like the uh, the, the three-prong Mac OS uh, attack last year that it, that went after that activist, the uh, three different zero days, Apple pushes back, I forget how many releases, if it was three or four, uh, with security patches where Microsoft, they finally, on Friday after this thing came out, they said, all right, all right, we'll le- release the Windows XP and Windows 8 and whichever other releases they didn't put out. They pushed them out for everybody, but, you know, a little late. That's my rant. So I think Apple's made a lot of design choices that not it doesn't make us immune when we're running a Mac, but it makes us more resistant because all of the simplest ways in which a worm could connect or a virus could, I mean, it's really like uh, the vectors on a Mac are worse than on Windows. It's harder to spread stuff from machine to machine, especially over the internet with a Mac than it has been with especially earlier versions of Windows. And we mistake the difficulty of spreading a virus with the um, potential harm a virus can cause. So that's my rant. Bing. Yep. <laughs> so, and I don't know if you saw yesterday, you probably did. I know Roman wrote up a, a quick thing about it, uh, macworld.com, but Apple pushed out um, updates to all of its OSs. And yes. there is a long list of security stuff, as there often is. And, you know, some of them are uh, user could escalate uh, permissions. User could do this. A malformed packet could cause blah. And so I haven't heard any buzz and seen any stories about any of those being zero days or things discovered in the wild or coming from the shadow brokers, which was releasing, uh, I think, Windows and Linux uh, flaws were the ones they released. Um, but, you know, this is the battle. They're constantly releasing security updates. And just install those updates as soon as you can without breaking what yep. you're doing. I just got F Secure, the beta that used to be Little Flocker, and so I'm currently uh, training it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like a little baby; cool. you got to train it. Yep. So um, if anyone tries to get into my files, I'll know about it. Uh, yeah, someone pointed out to me there's a new uh, piece of software from uh, Patrick Wardle, who's a longtime um, security researcher, has done a lot of work in uh, in macOS, and has brought to Apple's attention a bunch of fairly major flaws before they became widespread. He makes block block, but he also has a new tool out called name I've forgotten. It's ransom something. <laughs> uh, I'll find it. But it's um, so uh, block block is a tool that I uh, use in common with, or you should use in common with um, uh, Little Flock, or sorry, Xfence. It's new name. Uh, Xfence lets you know when programs are touching. F- oh, sorry, yeah, touching file locations for the first time. You say, oh, you know, do you want? Um, should Microsoft Word be, uh, you know, <laughs> looking at stuff in your um, Photoshop folder or something like? Well, maybe not, right? Um, yeah. And Block Block alerts you when things are being installed for permanent um, uh, or for a startup. So in the uh, kind of hidden library folders where startup things are stuck, not the um, not the user exposed user and accounts uh, area where you can put startup items that are apps. This is the startup demons and launch engines and things like that. So BlockBlock says, hey, something is trying to modify 
this area where uh, you keep all your startup stuff. Uh, is that what you want? So Patrick Warrell now has the thing out. I have not tested yet, but it's called Ransomware, W-H. Uh, ah. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's uh, it looks for – it's following up on some research that has been done on the Windows side where you can identify ransomware because it starts encrypting files like MAD and apps – typically only work with a file type associated with it where ransomware works with every file type. So word is most likely to work with dot doc and dot 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 doc X and dot TXT files. Mm-hmm. But if you have an app and it's suddenly working with, you know, a whole range of extensions, that means something's wrong. So ransomware question mark, uh, it tries to look at uh, when files are being modified by one program, whether it's, um, uh, it looks at the entropy level of those files, which lets you know whether they've been encrypted or not. It's a way to test that. And it can alert you that something seems to be trying to suddenly encrypt a bunch of your stuff. So that's a different approach. Little Flocker or Xfence was giving you giving permission to apps to do specific things. It's kind of locking it at a kernel level. So if ransomware got on your machine, it would say, hey, this program you don't know is trying to uh, write a file inside your you know, user directory. Do you want to do it? You'd be like, I don't know what that is. In this case, this could be running. A ransomware could insinuate itself, be running, even, and, um, and uh, ransomware would alert you. So I need to test this, but uh, I like the idea that it's a generic thing. It would just be um, – noticing whether ransomware patterns were happening as opposed to having you have to train every folder location. Mm-hmm. So uh, the expense approach is more comprehensive is the thing, but, but there we go. Sounds like they could work together pretty well. Yeah. And the, uh, I mean, now that uh, Jonathan Zazarski is at uh, Apple, uh, I mean, he, I know he worked with Patrick Wardle. They kind of communicated on things. So I don't know what, F-Secure will do with that, but um, I'm glad that different people are working on it because uh, I keep pounding the drum about ransomware, not because I think it's imminent, but because it's so plausible. And we've now seen three different uh, – actually, I think it's four different attempts across three software packages that are aimed at the Mac where the um, binary has been uh, uh, hijacked. The most, the re- most recent was uh, uh, Handbrake. And so Trojan Horse was inserted, and Trojan Horse in the Handbrake case was a remote – uh, computer access one, but in the other three cases, it was um, ransomware that was installed. So it's not implausible that you could download something from the internet from an independent developer whose account at GitHub or somewhere else had been hijacked, and um, it could have a Trojan horse. And so, uh, you know, there's the way to protect against that is to have software like F-Secure's Xfence or ransomware or other software installed that is monitoring for unusual uh, software behavior. Um, unfortunate but that's the case and again i'm hoping apple builds more of these features directly in because it should it has more control over the system all right onward um susie i was uh i know we've talked in the past about the kind of exciting element of wearables helping with health i was delighted to see this story about research looking into the apple watch predicting um the onset of like early heart disease through very specific th- things that it can measure seemingly um, basic information. It, it, this was a, I thought this was a great story. Are, are you excited in this area about health, like advanced alerts of health uh, issues? Absolutely. I mean, this is going to be like the next killer app. Um, and this is, um, this, this could be like bigger than the iPhone, like when they get it right. The anti-killer, um, the anti-killer app. You're right. Yeah. So, um, so the heart rate sensor that's in the in the Apple Watch today, like the one that's sense, uh, shipping now, is um, 
it's pretty accurate, right? So um, there was a study, uh, developers of the Apple Watch app uh, Cardiogram, which mm. is a really cool app, mm. um, and they worked with researchers um, from the University of California, San Francisco, who were doing a health e-heart study, and that was a research-based, a research kit-based study um, called M-Rhythm. And uh, they, it was a 14-month study. It collected more than 100 million heart rate data points for more than 6,000 Apple Watch so users. And then they put all that data into a machine learning-powered algorithm and found that they could detect atrial fibrillation so amazing. 97% of the time. So okay, amazing. So atrial fibrillation is uh, can affect one in four people in their lifetime. It causes 25% of all the strokes. And um, this is this can be totally asymptomatic. Like when people that are seemingly healthy just have like a heart issue or a stroke, like just out of nowhere, um, this can be one of the things behind it. So that's insane. That's so yeah. great. Um, so yeah, like we, uh, Caitlin interviewed um, one of the researchers and he said, like, we had no idea at the beginning of the study that this would be so accurate. They did a great job with this. Um, so yeah, if there's a consistently regularly rhythm, uh, consistently irregularly regular rhythm, um, yeah. So the, the beats per minute might not be like totally precise all the time, but the sensor can get any irregularity in there and that's what it's looking for. Um, so yeah, a cardiogram and you know, I hope that they, they build this in soon. Um, they're still testing it. It has to be, it has to have like, um, FDA approval if they're right. going to say like this watch app can alert you and you need to, to see your doctor. Um, but you, it's it's that's so cool. So um, and then there's rumors that um, glucose is going to be the next um, the next frontier after after heart oh, monitoring. Oh God, can you imagine? It'd be so right. great. Yeah. So there have been um, some rumors about that. Um, the, Tim Cook and Apple have said before that they don't necessarily want to make the watch itself like a medical device because then you need FDA approval for everything, and that can right. really slow down the development process. You'd have to wait, you know, to to roll out new models until everything was tested and approved. Um, but they've been talking before. Um, we, we've heard, like, um, in the patent space, they were talking about these smart bands, and that might be a good way to kind of decouple the development of the watch. That's just a regular wearable for anyone who wants, you know, the the fitness tracking kind of thing and the notifications and stuff, um, and then have the bands have the sensor and, um, that way, uh, people who don't need constant glucose monitoring wouldn't have to, you know, pay that expense and the bands could be FDA tested. So it would be like an accessory that you could add on. Oh, that would be cool. really cool. Um, you know, obviously that is still, we haven't seen any, any like real proof of that or studies. So this study though is really, really fascinating and, and you should go read the article. Well, imagine if Apple went a slightly different route too, is what if they came out with a meta watch, right? Med eye watch. And um, it was, you know, kind of Medicare approved and FDA approved. And it'd be the kind of thing that insurance companies and even Medicare would subsidize or pay for the purchase of because it would reduce the cost of health outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and you'd have a stream of data. I mean, so I could see them. I mean, the band idea makes much more sense, especially uh, short term because it uncouples it or 
um, apps being approved as FDA, you know, assuming the, it's talking here, the FDA can approve the um, app as a way to measure outcomes. So the watch doesn't have to be, um, but AFib is a great example because um, my mother-in-law, I'm sorry, my mother-in-law, my stepmother has uh, um, a, uh, has uh, AFib and um, it happens that from time to time, she doesn't usually have to go to the hospital. Unfortunately, she had to go uh, recently. Everything was fine. Just had to monitor her, but um even short instances of it, you may not even notice it necessarily, or you might pass it off as not an issue. I'm just picturing doctor cardiologist saying, look, if you, you know, you, and the integration is tricky. You know, there's always, I can't, it's not magic. It's not like install the app and your doctor's office gets the information, but mm-hmm. with the right back end integration into existing uh, medical systems, conceivably the app could be sending details about like micro episodes and other kinds of things that are typically ignored. And those might then also become better indicators for a big episode coming in. Like you need to come in because we need to get you on this new medication. Or mm-hmm. um, we know like, uh, you know, we, we've seen a bunch of minor incidents come in so we can take care of it. And you can imagine the, the cost savings there, like for, you know, the quality of life is of course enormously better when you can catch these things ahead of time or um, nip them in the bud. Uh, but the cost of, you know, you go to an ER yeah. and it costs thousands. Of th- even if all your Hospital insurance. Hospital stays are yeah. expensive. Surgery is expensive. Everything's so expensive. And if you can prevent anything or see it coming early enough that, you know, for non-invasive, uh, inter- you know, intervention like medicine and exercise and yeah. stuff. This like is what I want. I want more, so much. more like this. More things where technology yeah. actually makes our lives better while also improving productivity and economic efficiency. Everyone's happy. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah this is world changing stuff. Uh, yes. Right. So this app will be, uh, right. The app will be potentially could be approved by the FDA, but yeah, I, I mean, the glucose thing is also, God, can you imagine? I don't have, uh, diabetes. I'm on, I'm, I'm being treated to prevent me from getting diabetes, but there are so many people who have it. It's such a modern condition and monitoring it, um, continuously, especially is a whole deal. And so anything, especially if it's a non-invasive way to do it, there's been people testing it. There was a, a band that came out, was funded on Indiegogo that to mix success, it certainly doesn't do exactly what was promised on the box, but their notion was they could be sensing through certain kinds of things. And I just don't think it was possible at the time glucose levels. So imagine an actual feasible way to wear an external item without doing a pinprick and mm-hmm. have continuous glucose monitoring. You would know exactly what foods and what meals are causing you problems. You'd know when you did insulin shots. You'd know when you need to go see the doctor. Um, massive improvement in, in millions and millions of people's lives. And again, it's the kind of thing that if you need a $250 device to do this, then conceivably insurers would underwrite or pay for it so it's not a luxury item. Sure, it's, yeah. Uh, because insurers pay for, you know, I have a CPAP for sleeping at night for sleep apnea. That thing costs, uh, it's like, Fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. It's covered by my insurance. I got to pay copays and coinsurance and deductibles and all that. But like, that's a thing that keeps me alive and keeps me from um, from developing far worse problems that my insurer would have to cover. So when you get like, mm-hmm. you know, when you say, "Oh, the watch is two hundred fifty dollars or three hundred dollars," like, yeah, but every medical device is vastly more expensive than that. True and reduces. So true. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Yay! Some good, interesting, like happy news. Um, yeah, that was really cool. Uh, so, uh, you've got a story we're going to talk about, about Google assistant coming to iPhone, some of these, and then Alexa app for iPhone being updated. What's going on with that? I don't follow the talky things that much. The things that I talk to, I don't talk to enough things. So, I well, don't... so, I mean, you know, AI and voice assistants are the big thing now. And when you look at your iPhone, you think, oh, I can talk to Siri. No, you can talk to Google and, uh, Google, Google is gonna, they're having Google IO this week. 
So it's expected um, that they are going to release Amazon Assistant's um, for, for Google. Like right now you can use the Google app and do some, some voice things, but, um, Google would release a standalone assistant app for iOS that would, um, blend kind of the, the chat thing that you get in Google Allo where you're chatting with someone and the assistant kind of pops in like a, like a chat bot. And then the, uh, the voice controlled, um, uh, Google assistant that is on Android. So, um, it, it can do kind of cool things. It can, it's a little more conversational if you ask me, but I mean, my Siri bias is well known. Um, and, and so, and it, and it does better with sort of context, like linking queries together. So if you said, um, you know, who is Tim Cook, it would tell you, if you said, who's the CEO of Apple, it would tell you Tim Cook. And then if you say, where did he go to college? Mm-hmm. Like Siri wouldn't wouldn't get that. It would say, well, "What are you what are you talking about?" Yeah, would, but Google, Siri, Siri would say, "Roll Tide." <laughs> yeah, no, I mean Siri might not know that. Where did he go to college? Was referring to Tim Cook, which it just told me. So, but Google is is better about that. Um, so that that's pretty interesting. Um, and then Amazon is uh, rolling out Alexa into its uh, flagship iOS app into just like the plain Amazon app. So now you can um, ask Alexa questions, get shopping assistance, track orders, and play Prime videos and music. So it's not quite the same, but mm-hmm. um, but but this is Alexa's you know first appearance on iOS. So yeah, um, Siri's home is getting invaded by these other <laughs> assistants. Good. Um, yeah, competition and, is good. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so you know, once all this rolls out, like the Alexa update is out, but it's still rolling out, and they. They said all iOS users should have it by next week. And then um, Google is, you know, obviously Google I.O. starts, I think, tomorrow. Um, so, you know, that still has to be confirmed. Mm-hmm. But then after that, we can do some some fun experiments to ask the same things of Google and Siri and Alexa and see how it um, works. Because, I mean, we're looking forward to WWC, um, hopefully hearing about Siri taking a big leap forward because it is kind of the glue that's holding a lot of these different um, hardware and services together. And as we've talked about before, it's a totally different animal when you're using Siri on Apple TV versus Apple Watch versus iPhone. Mm-hmm. Like I ask my Apple Watch stuff and it's like, I don't know, you got to use your iPhone. And like that should not happen um, when you have like one one voice assistant that's supposedly like available across all these platforms. It should work the same. So yeah, I think that Siri is going to be a big topic at WWC. So it's sort of interesting seeing like how the other companies are kind of positioning themselves before we hear from Apple. So if Apple, like if, if the WWC keynote ends and we didn't hear anything about Siri, like that's a huge problem. Yeah, I, uh, I'm compiling a list of uh, Mac OS, uh, like a Mac OS wish list for uh, Roman for uh, oh, good, that'll yeah. run, I think, next week. Maybe it's sort of in advance of WWDC. And Siri is, you know, it's not uh, like Siri's on Mac OS now. It's still, I don't use it. It's not in a way that makes sense. But it's partly because, as you say, Siri is siloed, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that there's an Apple TV sort of semi version, but then there's the Mac, like I can't, home kit is only an iOS. So why can't I say to my Mac, you know, Ahoy telephone, um, turn off, uh, the lights in the upstairs bedroom. I have to pull up my phone to do that. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So, yeah. and we know you it's do that just with a, your watch or your phone or your TV, but, but not, not your Mac. Yeah. So uh, right. And why can't, <laughs> why can't my, why can't my Mac be a home kit hub? Right. 
They're like, your iPad has to be a HomeKit hub. I'm like, but I have a Mac, and it's on all the time. A lot of people have Macs that are on all the time. Or in the sleep mode, Apple could uh, provide – they do some background processing on a Mac. Yeah, Mac they could put a HomeKit like, mode in the like – Exactly. A, you know, a box you check. Just like in the iPad, there's like a – it's like a special mode, and that, that just helps it wake up. Precisional. Like you're supposed to leave it plugged in all the time, and then the mode just helps it like wake up when it, when it needs to. Precisimal, precisimal, mon capitan. It's true. So they uh, could do that with the Mac pretty easily. Yeah. So there's all these things. And and by the way, folks, if you, you know, I'm writing this article this week. And if you're listening to this on Wednesday, drop me, drop me a line uh, to send it yeah, to you. Yeah, tell uh, us what you want to see you in can send Mac it to, OS uh, next thing. I'll disclose my own personal email address. It's Glenn with two N's, G-L-E-N-N. Mac OS Fresno. Yeah. Glenn at Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N at G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank.com if you have Mac OS thoughts. But I'm writing it this week and I, I solicited opinions for people. I certainly have my own opinions, but um, a lot of folks West want things like uh, – uh, iTunes being broken up and other things uh, that just, you know, there's just all this rough stuff in Mac OS. You're like, come, you know, we want, we want better integration across all platforms. We don't want to have to silo what we do. Cause that's not very Apple to mm. have things that don't work everywhere the same way. Uh, all right. Um, oh, speaking of those, speaking of iTunes, <laughs> iTunes is going to be in the Microsoft, uh, Microsoft's windows 10 S store. Um, no, I thought that was bad news because, as you said, you know, people have been wondering when is iTunes on the Mac going to be broken up into a bunch of different things. And then when they said, oh, iTunes is going in the Windows Store, we were like, oh, so that means it's probably not this year. Like, it would be weird if they put iTunes in the Windows Store in May and then stood up on stage in June and said, no more iTunes. It's going away. There'll yeah. be an Apple Music <laughs> app, an App Store app, like all the apps that you have on your phone will be on your Mac and That's it'll right. all sync and everyone will be happy. So yeah, I guess funny. they could still do it and they could say, yeah, it's just, we'll leave it as one app on the Windows side because right, who cares right. about them? Well, it's, yeah, especially because on the Windows side, I mean, I forget if the iTunes in Windows, uh, like Apple, Apple's Windows strategy is terrible because they should be replicating all the apps that provide access into the iCloud world and mm-hmm. Apple and iOS world. And they don't have, you know, they'd stop releasing you airport. You can do iCloud photos on yeah, Windows. It's true, but it's right. But it's like the airport utility, they stopped supporting that years ago, even though, I mean, long before we thought they stopped caring about selling uh, Wi-Fi stuff to Windows users, it's still uh, <laughs> iTunes. I just get growly. Um Final story this There's week. There's an iCloud yeah. for Windows app that can help you do uh, iCloud photo library, my photo stream, oh, and true. download yes. download new stuff automatically still, from your iCloud. It's to awkward your PC. and weird. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just like people ask me sometimes. They're like, "Oh, I need help with iTunes for Windows," and I'm like, "Okay, get a surfboard." Put your computer on it, set it on fire, yes. push it out into a lake. There you go. You're very funny. You're very It'll funny. Be better, but uh, it's true. It's it's just Apple doesn't need Windows users is the fundamental thing. At yeah. one point they did, and now they don't, so they don't care enough to do it the right way. And they used to do a lot more support when they wanted to pull in people and had switchers and all that. And now they're like yeah, a lot of people function on their phone or iPad, and um, that's it. Apple only has so many software people, and we need them all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God, keep working on the stuff that needs to be fixed. Put down whatever you're doing on the Windows side yeah, and just come back to that. the light. <laughs> um, one, uh, oh, I, you know, I forgot earlier, by the way, on WannaCrypt, just to circle back, if you're running a virtual <laughs> Windows machine on your Mac, which a lot of people do, some of us, including me, don't fire those things up for periods of time. Because there are so many viruses and so forth out there, you may want to consider a plan for how you can install, how you can bring up your Windows virtual machine on a Mac 
without having it have unfettered access to the internet because it could be immediately infected by something. And that's mm. generally the case. But in this case, you probably want to fire it up without network access, turn off SMB support for sure so it can't be reached or disable its ability to be reached, like turn on a firewall inside it so nothing can reach it from the outside world at all. And then run the updates because uh, the updates is outward bound. It goes and detects them and downloads them. Uh, so make sure and do that, folks. And sorry, I meant to that, mention that earlier because that's the way in which um, Apple folks can be affected is with Windows virtual machines that are, you know, if you're if you haven't run it for like since um, mid March, if you haven't launched it, you're in terrible shape. Um, so let's see. So the last story we have this week is uh, MP3 going off patent, which is an interesting issue. And uh, our good friend Jason Snell, who is uh, just staying at the uh, the manor, the Fleischman Manor, was just visiting here up in Seattle and uh, recording podcasts. Airbnb, Airbnb. Yeah, it's uh, we were, we did a, only two podcasts that happened in the house while he was here, and I was involved. That's it? With one of them. I know, I know. Uh, Steven Stepanski is part of the Incomparable Network. He said, you know, when I was visiting Jason, we did like four podcasts. Oh, jeez. Uh, but Jason, uh, the st- he and I were sitting around talking one he's night, sleeping and, uh, old age. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, over the weekend, this MP3 story broke, and Jason was furious about it, and he's he wrote at six colors. He wrote a story about it because kind of a little little obscure for the Apple audience, um, very interesting to the podcast audience and audio world. Uh, the uh, Frauenfelder, uh, Frauenfelder, that's sorry, boing boing said. Fraunhofer, which has a bazillion patents on a ton of interesting things, and it goes back. The company's origins are hundreds of years in the past. It's been inventing secret techniques and protecting them and litigating about them. for. They had a patent, and they terminated their licensing program because the patents ran out. Exactly. And so all the stories that ran – so Jason's suspicion. So Sunday night, we're sitting around chatting, and he's like, wait, what's this Engadget story? What's this Gizmodo story? So, So my theory is – it was under embargo until midnight Central European time because the stories dropped at like 4 p.m. Sunday uh, Pacific time. And uh, so all the weekend editors on these tech publications uh, wrote something up from the press release. And the press release says Fraunhofer, Fraunhofer is uh, developing – recommends everybody move to these new standards because MP3 is dead. It was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. let's let's step back a bit. No, MP3. My ability to make money on MP3 <laughs> exactly. is dead. Right. Ergo, please use this other format for which I still right. hold some and patents. There's an issue about um, precisely like some of them may not expire. Till, I, I don't have the full detail. Maybe later this year. So the whole package may not be available. But with MP3, when, once it's all the patents have expired, um, what this frees up for Apple and iOS, I mean, iOS and Mac users, there's a lot of software out there that doesn't properly license MP3. So they you have to get a third-party package called LAME, L-A-M-E, and install yes. it. Right. So it can't be bundled because and uh, the folks making it don't want to deal with patent issues. Sure, sure, and yeah. often it's open source or free software, so they don't want to deal with that. So uh, the great advantage here is because MP3 can be played on like everything. I mean, AAC is now very broadly supported. Um, mm-hmm. It's part of the MP4 sta- or MPEG4 standard. So AAC is still in many ways a better standard. It's more compact for the same kind of fidelity, but MP3 can be played everywhere, and there's an advantage in that. So um, this means a lot of software that didn't support MP3s, a lot of there's all kinds of um, audio-related and web-related things that can now uh, properly support or even like you could upload audio to a site and it could encode it. There's all these things that can happen now because yeah. uh, the patent's off. So it's actually really good news that was packaged as a MP3 is dead. It's like, <laughs> no, yeah. Remember how GIF died when GIF patents went off and we've never used GIF since like 1990. Yeah. 
seven yeah, or no one uses GIFs anymore. Yeah, exactly. yeah, just to quote from Jason's thing, which we'll link in the show notes. This is a time for celebration for anyone who is not Fraunhofer. The MP3 <laughs> is now free. Make your new MP3 encoders with abandon. Create more MP3 podcast tagging and chapter tools. Yes, please. Add MP3 export to all of those IO apps that desperately need it. So, yeah, this is good news for end users. Yeah, it's great. End users and then anybody who uses, uh, yeah, anybody who's using audio software and developers. Podcast creators yeah, and, and developer. It'd be great to. And anyone who's not Fraunhofer. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know when the AEC, MPEG 4 relies on a whole host of patents that are, I think, most of them are more recent. So, we may have uh, many years before AAC. Um, or any of the um, like H.264 or those standards would expire out all the related patents. But um, it, this is, you know, uh, Google was trying to push alternate video formats. There's Og Vorbis, which is, um, or Vobis rather, for. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and which was supported. This is so fun to say. I know, Og Vorbis. <laughs> um, there, there are things out there that are either, that are either known to be patent free because the uh, patents involved expired and no one has asserted any other claims or are believed to be patent free because. Uh, they were designed specifically to avoid infringing patents, and then all of the intellectual property involved was donated to the public domain or under an, uh, a free and clear license or whatever. Uh, but so MP3, I think, becomes the first audio standard. Um, if, this, if I understand it correctly, that would be we'd know all the patents were expired, which makes it as free and clear as anything out there. Um, so a friend of mine is Apple, a former Apple guy, really smart fellow was like, you know, there's this other format that's actually really good and it's patent free. And I wish people used it. And it's like, yep. And you'd have to get it adopted everywhere for anyone to use it. So it'll never be used. Like that's yeah. the flaw. Like there are better audio formats than AAC. There's better things, but um, our future is. I mean, uh, Betamax was better than VHS. Like that's how right. that worked That's out. right. That's right. But you know, the <laughs> this thing is, new. You know, Apple could decide that Betamax was a new thing and put software support in it for it, right? You know, they could they could make the yeah. podcast app. If they suddenly said, we're supporting MP3, AAC, and, um, you know, X537, and uh, that would make podcasters be like, great, most of my audience uses the podcast app. I will distribute also in that format as an alternate, and uh, it'll take half the space, and then eventually other, you know, podcast apps support that or whatever. Um, so that's where I, but it's cool. It's cool. MP3, uh Yep. So um, I pronounce it MP3. Some people pronounce it Ampathra, I guess, but no, I don't know. Not, no, no GIF battle there. We know how to say those letters, those letters and numbers. Uh, I think we've reached the end of our time. Yes, I think we have. To discuss things because we've run what out of things. What a wonderful time it was. It was. We, we laughed. We cried. We cried we a lot. We talked. We, we talked. Um, folks, you know how to reach us. Podcast at Macworld.com. Macworld.com is our site on the World Wide Web. You can, uh, you know, go to facebook.com slash Macworld. You can find us on Twitter at Macworld. We're just Macworld everywhere. Uh, and you can uh, find Susie, S-F-S-O-O-Z, like Z on Twitter. I'm Glenn, F-G-L-E-N-N-F. And I enjoy getting your feedback. People are always asking me stuff on Twitter that can be, that plays into this podcast or into Mac 911 uh, columns. Like, why doesn't this work? Why is this broken? Why is Apple so bad at services? And, you know, when we talk about it and um, have a good time. So, Susie, thank you again. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Glenn. And Always a pleasure. It's it's delightful to talk to you. And this has been episode 559 of the Macworld Podcast for May 17th, 2017. We will talk to you again next week, folks. 